This is Chicago saxophonist Rajiv Halim, and you're listening to Behind the Note Podcast with Chris Davis. You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello. Thank you for pressing play today on this episode number 49 of Behind the Note Podcast. We have a great show for you once again. And thank you again for pressing play for another week. And if you ever have binge listened to the show, I want to say thank you. Now, today we have a special guest for you that was recommended to us by James Newcomb of the podcast Think Outside the Music Box. So I want to publicly say thank you to James for making this recommendation and to our guest for saying yes. Um, Our guest today has been nominated for five different Grammy Awards and also actually won for Best Pop Instrumental Album for the album Impressions in 2013. Do you know who that is? A little trivia for you. I know you could have read the title of the show, but if you didn't, take a guess. Trumpet player and uh, became popular when he began working with Sting. And before that, he was a studio musician in New York. And I'm happy to bring to you right now, I'm just trying to be cool but I'm, I'm really excited to introduce to you right now trumpet player chris Bodie. thanks chris welcome to the show well i'm i'm happy to be here thank you for having me so we're going to get to know you a little bit i just introduced you but we want to get to know you a little bit better so i want to start by asking you this question what do you like to do in your when you're not performing music what do you like to do Oh, boy. You know, my whole kind of focus and and, and life is sort of geared up towards performing and playing the show. So if I'm I'm not touring or something like that, I'm probably just practicing and getting ready, getting, you know, hyped up for the next uh, load of shows or whatever we're about to do. If it's not totally not music related, um, I I like doing yoga and I'm an avid kind of chess fanatic. I'm not saying I'm exceptionally good at it but i'm i'm into it you know it gives me something to do on the road and and i find there's kind of a cool similarity between playing chess and and jazz you know there's a lot of preparation things that you need to do that are similar although they're radically different at the same time i love that i love to play chess myself also yes it's it's an incredibly frustrating thing i mean i i just get so upset at how bad i play sometimes at chess but it's a very addictive thing too and and i enjoy it so did you ever have a traditional day job well when i was a kid i think i worked in a um a, what do you call it in a a, a restaurant busboy and that sort of thing but I, but since then i've never had something that's not music related although i will say i've done a lot of pretty um uh, you, you know, on the lower end of the uh, of the uh, ranks of playing music gigs, you know, like playing in this, playing a lot in the street in New York or in the subway and that sort of thing. I've done I've done all sorts of different variations of gigs when I first moved there uh, to try to to try to pay the bills. That that can be re- rewarding in a way to develop your chops. I learned that's harder than it looks. A lot harder than it looks, especially in the elements and and uh, I, you know, but I did it. I did it a lot of it I did with with brass brass quartet kind of stuff and with fantastic players like Mike Davis on trombone and Kent Smith on trumpet and we had a little little quartet with another guy and so we we uh you know so it was still 
hanging out with great musicians and playing playing with uh, fantastic players. Will you tell us about the moment that you knew you wanted to be a performer for a living and what attracted you to this career path that you're on now? Well, I think it was when I heard Miles Davis on an album. My band director had given me when I was 12 or 13, and and um, and it was the My Funny Valentine record. Oh, yes. Which was excerpts from the Foreign Moore concert, the great group with uh, – um, with George, with George Coleman and 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 uh, Herbie Hancock and Tony and Ron, yeah, yes, and um, and it was that kind of approach to the trumpet playing, which was different from the other trumpet players that I initially sparked my curiosity about the trumpet, which would have been Doc Severinsen and Maynard and and that sort of you know Dizzy Gillespie, that sort of those sorts of players that played with that kind of extroverted joy and chops and that sort of thing. And Miles made it a more brooding kind of beautiful thing. At that point, I thought that I'm not going to become Michael Jordan. Um, and I think when you're a young person and you realize that maybe your dreams to be a, a professional athlete, uh, you're not going to, you know, evolve physically that well, um, that you, you, you got to find something to do to be proud of something. I mean, Ego in a weird way takes over in a positive aspect and you you want to be proud of doing something when you're in high school. And I thought I want to do music for the rest of my life. I didn't necessarily know or think about you know what it would take to really make it as a career. But I thought I'm going to sure give it my all and I, I was fanatical about practicing. So what are some of your habits that are responsible for you being where you are today in your career? You mean like trumpet playing, trumpet practicing yeah, in that? Yeah, trumpet, uh, but also in your demeanor and in your character and your personality also. I would say at the, at the, at the front end of it is, you know, a really a, a, a dedication to it. it. It's so simple for me when I meet someone and say, you know, well, you have to be dedicated. Well, that means a whole bunch of different things, but it starts very early on. And and maybe not so much now, but when I was growing up, if you wanted to make it in the recording world, and that is be an artist or be kind of a big, well-known, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to be a local person, it's there's so many outlets to do that all over the world. But if you wanted to make it in the music industry, you have to live in London, New York, Los Angeles, or if you're in country, I guess Nashville, right? And there are there's really no real exceptions to that. I mean, if you wanted to be well known amongst the general general population or, or musicians stuff like that, you need to do that. And I remember when we when we toured in South Africa with Paul Simon's group, and Michael Brecker was in the band, and people would ask Michael Brecker how they could become you know famous studio musicians living in South Africa. And he's like, well, you can't, you have to move to New York. I mean, that's just kind of the way it was. And so it starts there. You know, I went to school in Indiana and, um, I decided I'm going to move to New York. Now, a lot of great players didn't do that. They stayed in Indiana, even though they're exceptional players and they became kind of a local players. And so it starts there early on. So your dedication is, you know, are you going to do that? Then when you move to a place like New York, then you've got to motivate yourself to impress your people that you're playing music with and, and try to make it in the scene and then try to hold on to that and become, uh, have longevity and impress people and do gigs and that, th those sorts of things. And what happens is, is that you end up foregoing a lot. Like I don't actually live anywhere. I don't actually own any possessions. I don't have a dog or a cat or a plant. And, and my whole life is kind of revolving around 
practicing and, 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 and touring. And I'm, and I'm on the road about 250 days a year for the last, I don't know, 15 years, uh, 11 years with my own band, but before that was staying and stuff. And, and so I, um, you know, that's a, that's a big sacrifice. A lot of people really wouldn't do that. And so I'm, I'm kind of sort of insane in that way. So in the beginning for you, when you first got to New York, how did things unfold for you? I took every gig I could, you know, Latin gigs in the Bronx and then playing on the street, as we spoke about earlier, and um, lots of jam, jazz jam sessions, both late at night and, and during the day, like there was a bunch of great guys had sessions in Brooklyn. And and then from that, you you get to know people. I mean, I would I would meet someone like Lou Soloff, who, God bless him, he just passed uh, in, in March, I believe, yes. this year. And uh and he here's a guy that was famous at the time by the time I got to New York, but took me under his wing, not necessarily like overtly, but he would like take me and my girlfriend at the time. He'd take us out to dinner and hang out and we'd talk about music and and it was great. And I ended up auditioning for a band, which was the house band at the Playboy Club. And for the first year and a half, that sort of sustained me. I got that gig. It ended up having some amazing musicians in it. Uh, Andy Snitzer, Mike Davis, the trombone player, Kent Smith, the trumpet player, Jeff Kivett, the other trumpet player, um, and then Rob Mathis, who's gone on to become like just an iconic arranger and, and producer as well. And they were all in the band. And so in turn, I would invite Lou Soloff to come sit in with us. And so we all sort of become became friends. Randy Brecker would come down. Um, and it's just kind of a it's just kind of I became sort of the guy on the scene that was a representative of my generation, uh, which I'm the generation below uh, in age of, of Randy Brecker and Lou Soloff and Alan Rubin and all those guys. And they were nice to me, you know, and they and I, I'll never forget how great they were to me. And so when I started becoming um, having the opportunity to hire musicians for lots of studio sessions and television dates and stuff like that, I, I would in turn turn around and hire Randy Brecker and and uh, and and Lou Soloff as a thank you and respect as well. So what what are some of those recordings that you did in the studio that we probably would never know was Chris Bodie? I mean, all the wide world of sports stuff, you know, that da 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 all that stuff for years. I mean, and it was before what we call in the business Pro Tools, which is the ability to like play one version and then cut and paste it to different places. Oh. That's what's that's what's real big in the business now. Yes. It cuts down on time. Well, we didn't do that then. I mean, this was I'm talking about this is like 1992 to 1990, 19, 1990 to 1998. I mean, in that eight years, I really that's how I made my living in New York. And we would go in and we would do like 16 hour horn dates. I mean, mm. I mean, it was just like endless. We would go in and we'd have like 180 pieces of music to chop up for some uh, wide world of sports package for this guy, Ed Kaloff, that we did tons of stuff for. But I mean, I did like, you know, all the uh, ABC World News Tonight. I mean, all those those different kind of orchestral, big brass section packages. And then at the same time, I was playing on a lot of on a lot of different pop albums. Uh, we worked a, a ton with Arif Martin, who was a, a legendary uh, record producer and, and, and uh, formed Atlantic Records. And he's uh, he 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 passed away a few years ago, but he is just an icon. I mean, produced all the, I mean, I mean Aretha Franklin, and and I mean just t on and on and on. Uh, Nora Jones and just tons of people. So so we worked a lot with him. And um, around I think it was like 1990, uh, Paul Simon, who was looking and has always looked 
to the studio world for his players, i.e. Steve Gadd on drums, Michael Brecker on saxophone, David Sanborn on saxophone, whoever it was, he put the word out and said, you know, who's the new young guy on trumpet? And uh, Lenny Pickett, uh, who everyone knows from playing the saxophone in the Saturday Night Live band, uh, recommended me to go in and and, um, and and play for Paul, and I did. And, and I got that gig for – that was a two-year world tour – uh, standing right next to Michael Brecker. I mean, Michael Brecker became my big brother. It was just an incredible wow. opportunity. Wow. If you're playing those 16-hour days, uh, tell us some tips on how you were just able to do that physically. You know, how did you keep your chops up? Well, first of all, you have a you have a support you have the support of a lot of different players. But I would say that the most difficult thing about the studio, and I would I would think. I, Sometimes there would be lots of you know musicians that would come through the ranks, and, and I've been on tons of sessions with players, and it's the mental aspect more than the physical aspect of the studio that makes that trips up brass players. In other words, if there's like a if, if there's like a thirty two bar rest and the whole orchestra is playing, and then you get to the last figure and the brass player's got to go ba 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 that. Sometimes you will find like very well-known guys that will just kind of space out and they'll count the 32 and then they'll come in a little late on the, the – the, oh, oh, I didn't know. And then you got to stop and you got to redo the whole thing. So it's the mental thing over a long 16-hour session that trips you up more than your actual chops being bursted. That said, I went to Indiana University and, and got to study with the great legendary Bill Adam and it's his daily routine. They call it the routine, quote, quote. Yes. Um, that I would do that really, to this day, gave me the ability to a not obsess over equipment, and b to to really have something to ground me. I mean, that daily routine or that notion that I'd get up and go do that kind of practicing is something that I do every day. I mean, every day. I just finished a little bit now, and when, before we go to the show here in a little bit. I'll do an hour and a half of it and then we'll do the show and the show's a heck of a lot of playing. And so that, that's a, that's a, that's Mr. Adams presence in my life was something that really, really saved me. Behind the note podcast is all about advice for a successful music career. I want to talk about some business related things for a few minutes, uh, branding and in your target audience and having a business. Uh, let's, let's start with branding. How, how important is branding? Number one, and how can a musician develop his or her brand? Well, I'm pro- boy. I hope I hope I'm not the, uh, the 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 aging musician that that sounds like kids get off my lawn here. However, <laughs> <laughs> however, what it is is that I, the more successful I become, the least or the less interested I have become in trying to brand anything other than my live show. In other words, I get offered all the time to like, hey, what about a Chris Bodie trumpet? Not interested. What about a Chris Bodie mouthpiece? What about a gig bag? What about a blah, 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 blah? What about all these different things, which for pop singers or for movie stars, they're always interested in doing, you know, branching out and doing this. and They have a fashion line or whatever it is, right? But I recognize that the odds that a trumpet player could carry a band of 11 people around the world, do it really in a fun way, keep the same musicians that are all on an incredibly high level, be able to play Carnegie Hall or Sydney Opera House or go all over the world and, 
And the odds of doing that as a trumpet player are so slim, and there's so much luck involved in having that actually come to fruition that I don't want to like walk away from that. And I want to make sure that I keep on my sound of my trumpet, keep on physically on the sound of my trumpet, keep my game up, keep my, my thing, and then not worry about anything else. So I'm not really one of these guys that gets on Twitter a lot. I don't, I've never done it. I've never even been on Facebook. I don't have a Facebook account. I have a fan Facebook account that my people, that the people that I work with run, but I'm not out there tweeting or taking pictures of it. I don't, I, I got, I want to worry about other things. And I want to worry that when people come to the show, they're getting 100% of everything I got on that night. And, and that's, that, that keeps me away from kind of like diverting all my stuff with the branding. So maybe in essence, that's my brand is just to be, you know, real dedicated to the sound of my horn, because ultimately that is what's making people like the music or not. It's, it's simple. It's very, it's a very, very simple thing about people aren't coming to see my show because they want to hear me play 48 courses of stable mates. You know, it's, it's, it's a slightly more ethereal kind of thing, even though we do stretch out and play all the crazy jazz stuff, but that's initially why they're not coming. They're coming for the sound of the horn and maybe some romantic inclinations or something like that. But that, that, that's where, that's where we stand. So how have you been able to keep your band together on the road? You, you mentioned it's a little bit of luck, but besides that, what have you found to work for you? Well, as my career has gotten more successful and more successful, i.e. meaning they, the, the, the shows are bigger and they pay more, instead of spending my money on an entourage and, and backup dancers and a light show, I spend my money on better players and being able to secure them. I mean, for instance, like, I mean, when you travel as a musician, I mean, we dot all over the world. We're in, you know, just this month we've been in Korea and China and Japan and Australia and Canada. And then we, we, we'll, we'll fly to Korea and do a one nighter, you know, like, like all the time. Um, but, but the, but the reality is that, you know, that gets really hard on musicians. So if you're, if your gigs do better and better and better, rather than just expanding your entourage, you know, you fly everyone business class or whatever it is. And, you know, that's a huge expense, but it's something that keeps everyone motivated and happy. And that, that, those sorts of things translate into ultimately loyalty and, uh, and, and the band getting along really well. I mean, our band gets along fantastic and we were all kind of world-class players and, and I can't say that there's been a lot of world-class players in very famous jazz groups and nobody likes each other. So, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm happy about that. We, we all kind of get along. So for me, I looked up and I realized that at most of my performances, the people who really seem to be into what we're doing the most are women, and they're approximately uh, maybe early 40s to mid-50s. So I guess my question is, what's your target audience, and how can a person discover what their target, target audience might be? For sure, there's no way to figure out your target audience unless you have some sort of a long period of having uh, a report in your brain. In other words, like you said, you look out at the audience and you can kind of get a feel for it. Well, over a long period of time, I look out at the audience and I have whittled it down to this. My target audience is 9 to 20 
right? In other words, there's a whole mess of young kids that want to be an opera singer or a violinist or a trumpet player or a classical piano player or a jazz piano player. And they come to the show and they're into it. And then 35 to 90 or 95. And I think what happens is, is that God comes down <laughs> and says mm-hmm. to most people that when you're in, between the ages of 20 to 35, you're going to get into rock music or you're going to be an idealistic like jazz guy and, and kind of go off and do X, Y, and Z. And I think that that audience kind of comes back when they're, when they kind of grow up a little bit. And so, so that's what we have. We have the real enthusiasm of a lot of young kids that want to be musicians. And then we have grownups, 35 to 95. I mean, a lot of, a lot of couples come to the show, uh, and a lot of, uh, uh, people in that age range, you know, 40 to 90 or something like that, which, which I'm very happy about. All right. So I have some names here and I'm going to read these names off. These are people that you work with in some capacity. And, I just like for you to tell us a lesson that you learned from them. First thing that comes to mind. And I know you probably learned a lot from these people. All right. So the first name on the list is Bill Adam. Discipline. And then they call it the routine, but having a routine, something that gives you structure and grounds you as a player, especially a trumpet player is so key. And also Mr. Adam was really, very passionate about not having his trumpet students be become gearheads. In other words, not every day trying a new mouthpiece or every day trying a new horn or or interchangeable bell, this, that, that, blah, 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 putting braces all over. Ay, yay, yay. And so uh, he, he kind of really got down on people if they did that uh, for his own taste. And it stuck with me. I've had one horn and I haven't like deviated from it since I got this horn 15 years ago. And I, I owe all that simplicity to, uh, to Bill Adam. And the other thing Bill Adam did that was great is he developed a camaraderie between his, his students and their desire to not only practice together, but to applaud and, and, and spur on the other kids practicing. Uh, and that, that was a really, really cool thing. And, um, those two things, his sense of like bringing everyone together was, you know, a, a real big force in my life. And uh, he and David Baker were the great teachers at Indiana University. And I learned those two things from them, especially. And for the people who don't know, uh, Bill Adam is a legendary trumpet teacher. He's become legend because he's had so many students go on to be professionals at, of the highest caliber. Um, all right. Next name on the list is Sting. What'd you learn from Sting? Well, I have nothing in my career without him. I mean, first of all, he, he's become family to me. He's my bigger, bro- he's my older brother. He calls me his evil younger brother, but we, you know, it's be, it's far more than just <clears throat> having been in his group, but like everything that I, uh, every bit of success I've had, all those doors really have opened up to, they trace back to my friendship. And I'll just tell you one little story of like countless mini stories, but I'd been in his band uh, as the soloist. And he, he said, you know, he, he approached me initially and said, Chris, I I've had success doing this with Brantford Marsalis, but I, I think that, that if you take a couple of years away from your own solo career, that you'll have my word that I'll break the sound of your trumpet, the sound of your trumpet to a whole audience out there. Most of them, not necessarily jazz fans and, and they'll become your fans. And so, um, and that's exactly what he did. He, he, he did that. 
and in the ways that nobody probably knows about, but I've talked about it a little bit, but like for instance, after being in his band for three years, he fired me from his band simultaneously giving me this amazing opportunity to be his opening act. So he's like, Chris, you're not going to be in, in my band anymore. You're going to put your band together and go on the road. And now is your time to really go into the foreground, into the forefront and, and, um, and do it. You know, whatever happens, let the cards fall where they may. And so we were, I'd walk out and play in front of whatever, 15,000 people a night. And a lot of them were, you know, they didn't, even at that point, they didn't necessarily know who I was. And just to give you an example, we were playing uh, three nights at the Beacon Theater in New York. And somebody during one of those three nights was like, man, my friend Oprah would really like this guy. And then two weeks later, we were on the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, and we had to leave the tour. We, we, we had gone to Prague and, uh, I had to pull Sting aside and said, you know, Oprah wants us to do her show. And he's like, go, I'll get someone else to do, do the opener for you while you're gone. And, and, uh, we went and did the show and it came out great. I mean, those are just one of many, 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 you know, <laughs> I, I've done a whole bunch of PBS specials or three of them. And, um, and each time Sting's been on them and it's so easy to get Steven Tyler and Yo-Yo Ma and John Mayer on board when you have Sting first, you know, it's like, uh, uh, he's just yes. been, uh, and he's been my bet, my, my best friend and we've done tons of, tons of things together and he's just been great. Wow. What a great person to have in your life. Yeah. He's, and, 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 you know, he's, he's uh, I mean, I've every little bit about, you know, how to tour, how to have um, kind of a approach for the road. I, I've learned from his organization. He has a fantastic tour manager by the name of Billy Francis. And, and I, I sort of uh, uh, based all of what I do now after being on the road with Sting for three years and just watching every single little nuance. I mean, you're talking about a guy that, that is incredibly recognizable, but he never travels with an entourage. He doesn't have security around him. Can you name me one other young pop singer that today doesn't travel around with bodyguards and paparazzi and all that stuff? And Sting's right, more recognizable than any of them, you know, and, and, and he doesn't do that. And I, I learned a ton from the way he streamlines his, 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 his world, but also treats his musicians great. Uh, and, and it makes it about music and he's, he's very, very punctual and he's very respectful. And, um, it's, it's a, he's a very unique person. What did you learn about yourself while you were with Sting and how did you see yourself change during that time? Yeah, that's a very good question. For many things, I think it comes down to confidence and seeing that maybe there really is a door open there. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, I believe in myself. It's another thing to say, well, I believe in myself and I think this is also going to appeal, appeal to other people. And then lastly, I believe in myself. I think this is going to appeal to other people and there is actually a door open that I can step into. I mean, which, which I think the landscape for a young person coming up now to try to necessarily – become really well known in jazz is really hard now because there's I had a record company or I have a record company in Sony that had the 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 the, the financial wherewithal to like give me tour support to keep me on the road to put me on television you know to do all these things and 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 that those times are changing with the record companies and everything kind of falling on hard times a little bit right now but 
but I think it was just a real intersection of things that I could have never have dreamed of, uh, having met this guy staying and having him believe in me and like throw me out there and, and then to have it come back in a positive way. Then all of a sudden you like a kid, you can go, well, I can stand up now I can communicate now I'm here, you know, but, but that's, that's, the, that's really probably how I changed so much in, in my, in the way I viewed my career from the time I met him to, to the present day. Man, every time you tell the story, I have a new question. This is great. I'm I'm enjoying it so much. Excellent. For people today, it's a little different now. So, you know, we're in a do-it-yourself era. So what are some tips for young musicians, assuming they have the chops, to, to do it themselves the right way? Well, there's the, there's the whole, you know, YouTube following, stuff like that. But I think that that's probably more based upon, like, going viral in pop culture and you know, if you're an attractive 20 year old girl, then you can become the next Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. whatever. I, you know, that's, that's the, that's the goal for the, a lot of the young kids or Justin Bieber or whatever. But for a, for an instrumentalist, I think your, your number one thing, and I would applaud any kid that has the guts to still go after a music, to go after the joy of playing music, but you have to make it really that, that, that it's got to be coming from the actual joy of playing your horn and start out by more than anything because I get I have a lot of friends younger like that young generation and that 30 to 35 to 40 25 year old generation that that really want to make it playing music and I'm I'm like man the most important thing is is if you can impress the people that you're playing with because at the end of the day word of mouth in other words musicians all talk they tweet they text their friends, they're going to say, man, I went to a jam session last night or I did some session. I heard this guy on trumpet, whoever it is, some young kid, and he's incredible. Those things are the most important currency Hmm. is the respect that you get from everyone else. The other stuff are chips where they fall that, that you're talking, the luck of becoming the new Justin Bieber of trumpet is just like, I don't know. I mean, you might have better luck getting a lottery ticket. I don't but the most important thing is if, if you can conjure up real respect and chatter from other musicians, most of them can be jaded sometimes, then you that, that, that's the currency that you can live your life on, which I think is, is the most important, long-lasting thing. Chris Bodie, we enjoyed you on the show today. You've been a, a real treat for us today. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, and, uh, and best of luck to you with all your other podcasts, and I really appreciate you having me on. And I want to say thank you to you, our listener, for spending this time with us today on episode 49. And you can look at the show notes for this episode at BehindTheNote.com slash 49. Or you can type in Chris's name in the search box, Chris Bodie, B-O-T-T-I. And finally, sign up for our email list so that you can get tips for a successful music career directly in your inbox and you won't miss a thing. Thanks again. And until next episode... God bless you.